Hello and welcome to Tide Talks, the series of Save the Bay podcasts where we're talking about environmental issues and discussing the work of Save the Bay with the staff members themselves. We have a great episode today. I'm very excited for this topic. Uh, my name is Chris. Sometimes I forget to introduce myself, so I'll take care of that right away. So today we are talking about the Save the Bay headquarters, and we have the perfect people here for the job. I'm joined once again by Jonathan Stone, the executive director of Save the Bay. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chris. Thanks thank, for having me here. Thank you for coming down for what I think is your third appearance on the show. Uh, so you're getting rather good at these, and maybe you can just grab the wheel uh, if I lose control here. And uh, we've, got, we've got an old pro with us today, so we're in good hands. So Jonathan, welcome back. And today is a very special episode because Jonathan is not the only Save the Bay executive director in the room. We're also joined by Kurt Spaulding, who held the position of executive director at Save the Bay for 18 years, beginning in 1990. So, Kurt, thank you very much for coming down and joining us today. Well, great. It's great to be here, Chris. So back, back where I was for so many years. Yeah, it's been a little while. And um, I mean, to say back where... Back where you were is important today because what we're talking about is our location. And it's, it's one of the most striking or maybe enjoyable things about being involved with Save the Bay is this place that we're at. Um, if you think about it, it occurred to me that every remarkable group of people has a headquarters. You know, like the Justice League has the Hall of Justice, Batman's Batcave. Uh, I hope the comparison is obvious that Save the Bay has the Bay Center in Providence, Rhode Island. And that's where we are today. Uh, we're down in the back conference room where hopefully no one will uh, distract us here in the rear of the office. Uh, built at Fields Point, adjacent to the Johnson & Wales uh, Harborside campus. And the reason that we uh, brought Kurt into the office today uh, to revisit his old grounds here is because Kurt was very much involved in the construction of this facility um, in the years before uh, it opened in 2005. So, Kurt, I understand it's a, a big topic and also one that's uh, somewhat in the past for us now, but can you remember for us the the beginning maybe of the the idea that save the bay needed a new office yeah, or yeah. needed a new location how did that begin why well, was that it, obvious it began as we started thinking about the mission um back in the mid 90s uh, we had a great strong record as an advocacy group um but we started thinking about physical restoration of the bay uh with our organizations across the country, uh, groups that Jonathan is now very involved in, the Restore America's Estuaries Group, and we all were thinking about how to do physical restoration. And once we started that, and the idea that we wanted to put boats on the water, namely the Baykeeper, uh, and be more than a state house lobbying organization, uh, you start to think about your physical infrastructure and what you can do to achieve your potential. And uh, from there, we put a strategy together. Uh, there was a single board meeting in the cafeteria of Narragansett Electric, I think, down on uh, in Elmwood area, nice. where we had this very significant debate about whether we were going to move forward with uh, these programs that, that involved a lot more money and a lot more physical infrastructure, uh, namely an education program and uh, this restoration program, or were we going to basically hold to being an advocacy-only type group um, and that was a big choice for the board. But once you made that decision, 
then we had to start thinking about what it would mean and and that's when the base center idea came to be yeah well it seems like you were thinking about a few different things when you were looking to build a new facility you're thinking about um, your education program uh, Mm -hmm. that you were uh, hoping to achieve your habitat restoration mission Mm -hmm. and an access to the bay like you said to put the water keeper on the water Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, dock and embark boats and there aren't many locations where you could have struck all of those targets (laughs) at the same time what is the problem (laughs) exactly that was a problem how did you find this spot (laughs) i climbed all over the waterfronts in the urban core we wanted to be in the urban core yeah Uh, one thing that was very important to us was was being able to serve these urban schools and being close to them we we also thought about we needed to be within a few half an hour of the islands as far as getting down the bay yeah so being up in the city added too much time you know we had a whole criteria of things and then i just started climbing around waterfronts sometimes illegally sometimes legally <laughs> looking for sites the big break came when this site or this area which was vacant everybody knew it was and it wasn't very successful as a port uh, became available and that happened when johnson and wales got a hold of everything um which was just a, a sad note of fortune the uh, son of the owner of the land died, a 40-year-old man. Mm-hmm. His father uh, was very committed to Johnson & Wales, and he had been trying to speculate on the property. And all of a sudden, he decided he wanted to donate the property to Johnson & Wales, or donate, well, generally donated. So they, they acquired all of this. Mm-hmm. And that gave us an opening to go in and talk to them about something along the south-facing waterfront, because this would be a fabulous place. Yeah. And then we started looking at the different sites. And this was a little different. It was a little higher. It was an island, actually. This was really? the, this building sits on an island called Sunshine Island. Okay. The city had filled the land uh, around the island. Uh, so we, we saw some almost uh, uh, an important message about reclaiming what, what, what was public at one point. It actually was a hospital at one point okay. for children. So... Um, all that history lined up, and we got very focused on, on what was called the Sunshine Island Parcel. Yeah. So you finally found your location that uh, that achieved all of these different goals, maybe the four or right. five different things that you were looking for. And in, instead of finding maybe like, well, I'm not sure how it appeared to you, but some shining location, no. like the sun striking it, some beautiful like meadow, no. pristine. It wasn't like, built ready. It has it wasn't to ready to here. build on. No, it no. was. So this was a brownfield industrial yeah. area. It had yeah. been a landfill for many decades, not an right. active landfill when, right. when you saw it. But um, it, was it obvious to you immediately that the brownfield was the place to well, build the headquarters? You know, at that time, and, and remember, this is 2000, late 90s, brownfields redevelopment wasn't what it is today. The brownfields grant programs were just starting. Um, I will say Terry Gray, who's now the deputy uh, of, of EDEM, was uh, a champion in Brownfields redevelopment, and he wanted to see a signature project yeah. happen. He kind of talked me into it. He said, "Oh, that, that's a really developable brownfield." Yeah. Um, as we peeled the onion over the ensuing years, trying to get it done, it became more complicated. Uh, the thing that really threw us uh, curveball was the uh, discovery of methane on the site. Yeah. Um, 
And then a decision somewhere along the line that it was actually a landfill, and not landfill, not just a brownfield. Yeah. Because it threw us into a different regulatory frame. Mm-hmm. But let's just say I learned a lot about regulation from the other side. Yeah. And and how to get things done, which mm-hmm. I think has informed the organization generally. I think uh, it's helped save the bay, um, build a understanding what the issues are, and. <coughs> allows I, I think that that and, and the people are still here you know Winley Ferguson was a huge part of this yeah um, others were too um, so when we talk to people we kind of have a credibility yeah where, where the group has a credibility about how to do these things yeah I'm not sure exactly what the the phrase should be um, to put your money where your mouth is comes to mind yeah. but to to act out what the organizations uh, advocates for which which would be an environmental practice like reclaiming a brownfield yeah. instead of the headquarters could have been built right in, in yeah, pristine was, land oh yeah, there was some, on the bay there were some sites in barrington that were really wonderful yeah so yeah no one can say that the organization doesn't take itself no. seriously in that regard i mean this was literally a, a landfill yeah um, it was so and, and the hard part also was the design yeah trying to find that design that um represented principles of sustainability mm-hmm. and uh um you need to remember in that period there were no or there were very few green, quote, green designers, right. um, especially in Rhode Island. So we actually reached to a designer in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was quite controversial when you have design schools, yeah. <laughs> schools of architecture right in your state. So there were, there were some really big um, mm-hmm. process issues that went along with it, but it had mm-hmm. to fulfill, I think you said it earlier, it was all meant to um, speak to our mission. Yeah. Yeah, so, and we can talk about a few of the, those green features or sustainable features of the building. A few of them are uh, very obvious and striking. Some of them are more subtle. Uh, I think the, the first thing that a person would notice visiting the building is the vegetated roof uh, is quite striking at first. So the mm-hmm. roof of the building, if listeners haven't seen it yet, first of all, you're welcome to come see it at 100 Save the Bay Drive, Providence, Rhode Island. The roof is um, covered in soil. On the, yeah. That's on the north side. And it's uh, planted with vegetation, uh, succulents, and mm-hmm. some sort of. I'm not totally knowledgeable on <laughs> the exact yeah, these are species special plants that grow in, in in very thin soil. So, yeah. it, was it the uh, the architects' um, drive to make the buildings? Um, well, I'm sure the organization was hoping for a sustainable or a green building. And uh, were those ideas mainly brought in by the architect, or was the organization so, insisting on? So them? we did something that was uh, frustrating to every architect and engineer on the site. We, we said, look, we want this to be a wholly integrated design from the flat fact that was nothing mm-hmm. to all the green features, the building, the land, all of it conceived is in, in one vision of what to happen, what should happen. So, so mm-hmm. historically what people do is they make a site ready and then they bring the architect in. Yeah. Um, and the engineers would always say, no, no, it's our job to make it safe and then you can do what you want with design. And we said no. We, we want this to be integrated. The green roof was um, part of that integrated idea. Um, it was hard because there weren't a lot of good green roofs in the region at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was very worried about it. So we hired a special consultant to help us with that. Um, I, I, you know, I found that, um, well, this is the other challenge that you should, everyone should be aware. A lot of the green materials that are commonly used today, n- people didn't use. So, yeah. you know, the block, for example, and I know Jonathan inherited this problem. Uh, the block leaked a lot, you know, yeah. because they didn't know quite how to um, seal it properly. So because the block, it was, like the literal structure. Of yeah, the building, we built. Or? You know, we had cement block like uh, yeah. blocks, 
and it was insulated. Mm-hmm. It was special. It was green, supposedly green design blocks. Uh, so we we ran into uh, issues like that. But the roof we knew was so uh, challenging that we hired a special person to help. And I know it, it's mm-hmm. it's always going to be challenging. It's it's a north facing roof. Yeah. Um, it's got a very thin uh, soil composite type stuff on there. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I know it's a high maintenance issue, but it did make a big statement in, tar- in part because people can see it. Yeah, there's a lot of green roofs now everywhere, but you don't always yeah. see them. Truthfully, I don't know how many I've been around, but this is the only one I remember seeing because yeah. it's very, it's in your face when you drive up. That's um, right. So the advantages are that the roof reduces storm runoff right. um, when, uh, when there's rain on the building and increases insulation. That's sort of a natural insulation, I suppose. Um, and there are a lot of other environmental considerations about this building. Uh, that's on the the green roof is on the north side. Right. There's there are solar panels on the south side, right. PV panels for what that's worth. Um, and then the the actual structure of the building is conducive to natural lighting yep. in the office. Uh, and I think this is uh, one of the greatest designs to have, especially in an office space where people are spending their time inside, especially right. during the summer. You know, you're at your desk like. To the the workplace environment, I think, is enhanced by having uh, this design where the light kind of reflects into the office space. Right. And, well, we're in the back right now, and we we feel the light even yeah, in the room. We're still in. still well uh, illuminated yeah, in here. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the um, the sun the sun positioning considerations, which right. I hadn't fully appreciated yeah. until coming in this winter. The lower sun heats the building. Yeah. In the summer, the higher sun is blocked by the eaves, and there's a cooling effect. Right. And uh, and down to even smaller details, the water efficient toilets in the bathrooms. Yeah. I mean, the place is. It's thoroughly conceived to be um, sort of a low-carbon facility, not yeah. using much energy. And um, p- potentially there might be a dream to someday be it like a carbon, perhaps carbon-negative structure. Right. But, you know, this could I'll be let a these guys off. think about that. Yeah, Thinking exactly. about all of that yeah. was um, very exciting, um, especially the part about daylighting the building. I didn't know anything about that when we walked in. Yeah. But I can tell you, someone who worked here for several years after it was built— um, and now working in other facilities, it is indeed the case. You, mm-hmm. you, you are out here and you work here and you, you have more energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just is that way. The, yeah. the, the connection to nature that is actually inside the building mm-hmm. uh, feels very, very uh, energy giving. I don't know how to put it. It's sort yeah. of more natural to, you, to the, the rhythms of your day, even your so-called circadian rhythms that we all live. We live with that mm-hmm. light um, dynamic, uh, especially this time of year, so many people struggle with energy levels because they don't get any light. Well, if you work here, you know, Jonathan gets a lot of light. I can <laughs> yeah, say Jonathan's that. I made sure desk. his office got, his face gets a lot of light. The sun literally shines on Jonathan's desk all day. So yeah. that's, that's a pleasant uh, situation. Um, another feature of this area and something that I, I suppose was considered during the design was to restore uh, some salt marsh habitat yeah. around the building. Um, so was that a consideration from the start of the project? Is that something you had um, in mind all the way? Yeah, you know, and, and I was just talking to uh, Wenley about that a little bit. Uh, that was, that was uh, the energy of the staff, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the staff wanted to do some things that were very mission-centered uh, with the landscape. And so much of what we see to the south of the building was really the energy of the the habitat team which was now matured they'd been doing work all over the bay uh, for a couple of years at least by by 2005 they've been in business almost eight years probably at least and so 
they really brought their expertise to that side of things. So yeah, that that idea to do this little small marsh to the to the north west uh, northeast side of the property was really really their thing i didn't spend a lot of time thinking about that um i think uh jonathan can concur there's so much energy level in in the staff at save the bay that you basically um simply have to nod your head and say oh yeah that's a good idea yeah and off they go and and uh that's what happened there. Nice. I, I think it's come in nicely. Uh, the marsh has come in nicely. Um, the thing that I'm most proud of, though, is the public access down to the beach. Yeah. Um, that was incredibly hard to figure out how you were going to get people with disabilities to the, to the yeah. beach with this long ramp, if you will. Yes. Now, you still need a pretty stout uh, chair if, if, if the person is disabled with their legs. Yeah. But um, the fact is... Uh, we could get people to this beach. And that I think people need to appreciate this was just a big wall of construction debris facing the bay. We yeah. had to reshape everything and design that. So the actual interface there mm-hmm. was a uh, big piece of our, our thinking about the waterfront. Yeah, that's interesting because you start to appreciate how all those different factors seems like a bunch of different things that you were hoping right. to achieve. They're actually all connected because then... That's- that's what I mean by integrated. Yeah. I mean, we wanted this to be a place where there was public access for everybody. We mm-hmm. wanted it to be green and sustainable. We wanted it to be a brownfield. Uh, you start adding all that up. And mm-hmm. I, as, as you may, uh, listeners may know, after I left Save the Bay, I became regional administrator of EPA. So mm-hmm. I got to see a lot of facilities across New England. Yeah. And there's not a facility in this region that I know of mm-hmm. that does all of those things. Yeah. Maybe we're, this facility doesn't do every single one as well as a single facility might elsewhere. You know, there, there may be it may be greener and more solar panels or yeah. maybe this or that. But no one tries or tried to layer all the social benefits, all the benefits together and, and tried to optimize. And that, And I frankly think that's the challenge we have today yeah. in our environmental work and is, is how we build that optimal outcome of sustainability that in, in, in brings in all those other issues, whether it's equity uh, and, and you know, social uh, environmental justice and all these other issues. And we did that here. And I, and I think um, it stands apart. It's, it, it will stand apart because probably no one was as mm-hmm. had their head was, uh, we were just way ambitious. Yeah. It, it was very tiring by the time we got done. Yeah, it, that it sounds like a big, very big project. Um, that idea of integration is so fascinating to me because it's a topic that might become a theme that listeners will pick out on the show. And Jonathan and I have turned to this idea on other conversations, which is this idea everything is connected, everything is yes. connected. I think it's fantastic because it's an organization that's th- that's based on environmental matters ecology and the first rule of ecology is that everything is connected right so when you're building a new headquarters you're building a new site you have to think about how all these things are related and uh, and how they keep growing and that's another topic i wanted to discuss today which is not only the elements of public access that were established when the building was first created, but how they're developing now, it really hits you in the face when you pull up today that there's a hundred foot crane out on the water right in front of uh, the Save the Bay building right now, because we're expanding our public access dock. And Jonathan, I know that's something you've been involved with recently. So what is the idea there? And uh, what are the goals for expanding that 
public boat access to the water here? Sure. Um, I would say just in a nutshell, uh, our, the work we're doing now to build a public dock and a, and a pier to the waterfront is the sort of the, the last piece of the vision that Kurt articulated earlier for the whole site to make an integrated public access site that housed the staff, that housed our education program, that housed our boats, but became a public resource for, you know, residents, locals, people who live in the neighborhood, and for visitors to Rhode Island mm-hmm. who are coming to Johnson Wales or coming to the building. So the the pier is the sort of the final keystone piece of that public access vision. And I have to laugh about it, Kurt will appreciate this. It's um, it's one thing to go ask a donor for money for a really neat building, and it, not that that was easy. It was difficult. I'm not saying it was easy, but um, it's if if that was difficult, just imagine trying to raise funds for large concrete floating blocks that you put in the bay to yeah. protect the dock from water, from wave action. That that's tough. I mean, it's a tough sell, um, but thankfully we had we had and have a lot of support of people who do understand how important public access is. And we've been able to raise the funds uh, to, you know, finish this final piece. Um, I did want to add, Chris, though, I, I have to, I really have to nod to to Kurt and his fellow staff members and the board back in the day, back in the late 90s, when they conceived of the vision of this site, because it is truly spectacular even though we're now 13 years old and, and yeah we get a few things that need to be touched up here and there uh, i meet hundreds of people who come through this building and are just amazed at what it symbolizes and how usable and useful it is mm-hmm. um, there's a piece to public access that i think it's worth emphasizing as well and that is that the building is much so much more than a place for Save the Bay's staff and Save the Bay's operations. It's a point of convening, and we convene, uh, we host uh, literally hundreds of groups every year. Thousands and thousands of people come through this building, many for the first time, who've never even seen the Bay. I mean, I've had people walk through, I'm sure yeah. Kurt says the experience too, who walk into our lobby and they said, I had no idea that. Providence had such a spectacular view down the bay. Yeah, so it's really it's just it's just a really neat story of um, sort of a vision fulfilled, and that's how I coming back to your first question. That's how I view the dock. It's the final piece of a really impressive vision mm-hmm. for bringing people to the shore, and yeah. that's what so we're all about. I want to add, Chris, if you know, starting where we started, and there are some pictures here. There was nothing here. I mean, yeah. this, this was. We now with Johnson and Wales work, and I, I got to see it. You know, we John, uh, Johnson and Wales thought, well, if Save the Bay can go out there, then we could do something to the west, and then the and to see it all come together. And I want to say that the team that followed um, has been fabulous in that regard. They've stayed with that vision. And now, how many linear feet is it, Jonathan, from Johnson it's a Wales? Half mile. It's a half mile. And now I know this because just last night I was walking my dog down here at sunset and yeah. got to see the sun sunset and I, and I think to, to know that this much linear feat of public access was created in the urban core near communities that don't have this kind of access yeah. um, with with very little you know most of the money was private um, yes there was some public money that went into this mm-hmm. but the sweat energy and, and an awful lot of private money went into this 
it, it's, a, it's a real victory. I mean, it's a real important thing that got done. And uh, it doesn't get a lot of publicity, but I'm with Jonathan. It's just the word of mouth. It, it gets around. Yeah. It is. It's an, it's an incredible location. And it, the, it's so great, it's almost irresistible to share. So that's mm-hmm. why I think it's great that um, we're expanding the dock. We're inviting more and more people, hosting events. And I'm, I'm actually touched to think that this could be someone's first view of the bay because it truly would be hard to beat. I mean, potentially you get a view from the Newport Bridge that's pretty nice, maybe somewhere in Narragansett, like looking east. But when you walk through those doors and you come into that just center lobby atrium thing, whatever, whatever you'd call it, and, and through the glass and then see the bay, it, it really, truly is hard to beat. And that's yeah, really uh, fantastic. And it's because way beyond, you know, the inside of the building, obviously the, the, the grounds, the, the site, the uh, urban coastal greenway, the pathway along the shoreline are, are just so attractively done. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's important for listeners to understand that this site is open from dawn till dusk year round. And mm-hmm. we have literally we have people from all over the city of Providence uh, yeah. who come down here to fish. And a little, it's a, it's a not a well kept secret that some of the best striper fishing uh, in Narragansett Bay in the spring is right off of this property. Yeah, uh, we affront the Federal Ship Channel, which is forty five feet deep. We get big stripers that come up the bay in the spring, following the Menhaden, and you can cast your line right into that. Right off, the, uh, and it amazing. is really an amazing sight. Yeah. So it's it's a. Uh, one of the other things I should add, you asked about the dock, uh, we are putting in a, in a kayak launch, oh, which is nice. also pretty exciting. Um, it's, you know, there's a lot of sort of steep-walled, built-out shoreline in the Providence River. There are not many places where it's safe and easy to put a kayak in. This is going to be one of those where you can park in our parking lot and um, haul your kayak down this nice broad uh, yeah. ramp down to the dock and put your kayak in and go fishing or go for a paddle, what have you. Uh, that's just one one, that's one other amenity that's going to be really, really exciting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think that speaks to the notion of what cities are going to be in this world. I yeah. mean, you, you, I've I, you know, I worked in Boston for seven years, and, and I know Jonathan did too. And you saw what happened in Boston; it was transformative. And and now, because of the improved environmental quality of the water in Boston mm-hmm. and the water quality, it's just a. What I heard is the harbor is now a two billion dollar resource yeah. um, in, in terms of just its use. Because it's clean and people want to be on it, and that may happen up here too. You know, now that the river is as clean as it's been in hundred years, I, don't, I, I have to be careful to the people who are thinking about it all the time now. <laughs> yeah. like I, I haven't done certainly that improved greatly. It's greatly improved, and um, that goes with the story. That's part of the story. Is is it's a celebration of what has been accomplished, extending way back to the founders of of Save the Bay, yeah. who had a had a vision also. Their vision was the bay wasn't going to be an industrial resource. Right. It was going to be a people's resource. And that really was all we did here, was mm. we just brought that forward to the urban core. Yeah. And I, I do recall when I first started with Save the Bay, that was a, a thought that not many people had, was, okay, this, this vision can be brought right up the river mm-hmm. to everyone, not just the people who live further south where, where the water quality was better. Right. And, and it's, it's an amazing civic story. It's, it should be told, and I, I'm glad you guys are telling it. Yeah, I mean, we think it's, obviously we're a little biased because uh, we love the organization, but it is a fantastic thing to cut that path 
from the urban center out to the water. Yeah. And um, there really shouldn't, like you said, there's a vision of a future city where there is no divide between being in the city or being in a natural location on the water um, or on the shore. And that's something that's perfectly achieved in, at this facility. Um, so that's really great. It is, it is uh, something I'm pretty proud of. I, I, when I left Save the Bay, I said, well, I, I don't think I'll ever do anything quite like this again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and frankly, uh, uh, and I've done some pretty exciting things since mm. working for you know, President Obama and EPA. Right. But um, this stands, stands equal with anything yeah. uh, I've done and in the time we did it. I, I, I should say, and Jonathan said this, and I, I need to say, it was not um, Kurt Spaulding's vision. It was this vision of, of several or you know, a, a key n- number of board members mm-hmm. uh, who are still around. Joan Abrams is still with the organization, a woman named Kate Kilgus mm-hmm. I want to highlight. But there were others, too. Um, we'll, we'll never forget Kate Kilgus uh, standing in front of her friends and you know, that's how money's raised, by the way, friends to friends with yeah. her with her visionary speech about what this could be and mm-hmm. uh, achieved all of that. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for, for being the one to come down and, and share all that, uh, these histories with us about this location and and uh, for you, Jonathan, to share, you know, where it's going now and, and what it means to both of you. Uh, it's the it's a location that just silently expresses everything that Save the Bay is all about. And I think that's the moment when the vision is really naturalized and becomes so real is the fact that the building itself, even if no one was in it, would speak to what the organization yeah. is about. Chris, can I add one point that we yeah. worked on really hard, and I think everybody knows about this, is you come down the road to the site, and you don't actually see the bay very well as you get there. Mm-hmm. But then you go through those front doors, and the way the building's angled and the way the lobbies opens up, it, it creates this moment of discovery yeah. as you come in. And you've just said it in, in a lot of what you did, a lot of what you said. And um, th- that was the thought. And, and I think it, it, it stood the test. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so once again, I'd like to reiterate that the building is open to the public. And anyone who's uh, within reasonable distance and is interested in seeing it should absolutely come down. Uh, the address is 100 Save the Bay Drive in Providence, Rhode Island. You'll drive through the Johnson & Wales Harborside campus, and you can come right out to the water and see us. Uh, so we can wrap up our show now. Uh, I'm just going to plug a few things. If you're interested in learning more about Save the Bay, perhaps becoming a member or volunteering for the organization, you can check out savebay.org. You can follow at SaveTheBayRI on Twitter or visit Facebook.com slash SaveBayNarragansett. You can search for me on Twitter if you look for Chris Joseph. That's my name. Let me know if you like the show or what else you'd like to hear about on the show. And I'd like to thank both of my guests one more time and ask both of you if there's anything specific you'd like to promote or a final tag you'd like to leave on the episode. Well, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to describe what was going on here and, and uh, bring, bring back the the story. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. Yeah, well, thank you for coming and sharing it with us. And my, my, my just message to listeners is, um, you know, none of this vision would have been fulfilled with, without the support of a lot of people. And we've always taken that to heart. We are a community-based organization. We rely on our volunteers, our members uh, to help us do what we do. And there are tons of ways to get involved. And you mentioned a few of them. So I would just reiterate that, you know, come on down. Get to know us a little bit. Um, we are always looking for help, and there are lots of ways you uh, can have an impact on protecting this beautiful bay. Yes, absolutely. All right. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Kurt, Thank for you. coming down. And we'll sign off here until next time.